0: This is the One Soldier Podcast, episode 15, with me, Russell Hillier. On today's episode, I'm joined by my friend and the Hemingway of the Prairies, Robin Spear. We're going to be talking about literature and war, which wine pairs best with phosgene gas, and his new book, St. Lazarus Day, and other short stories. We're also going to get into the state of Canadian literature and why men don't read. Robin joined me from his home in Saskatchewan, and our chat starts right about now. All right, well, Robin Spear, welcome to the podcast. Really uh, happy to have you on because this is the first time that I've actually had a friend on the show. So I I feel like I don't have to be like so professional uh, as I usually, not that I am usually, but uh, really happy to have you on.
1: Thanks for having me on, Rust. It's great, great to chat with you. It is, it is a great show, and uh, no, you do a wonderful job. And I know you've got a lot of uh, August guests uh, on on the show, and uh, I'm happy that uh, you you're having me on just with uh, my uh, my fun little stories here.
0: I like that you have a beer in your hand because uh, well, that is a beer, right?
1: absolutely it's a saskatchewan beer yeah we we grow barley here on the family farms in saskatchewan Uh, so local grain local uh, local beer sunday afternoon absolutely
0: sweet man well that reminds me of beer with spear because because we've known each other for
1: almost 20 years Uh, absolutely yeah beer with spear um that was that was quite the thing we did back on the the parliament hill in ottawa and and out east and then in, in calgary for years as well and um yeah, it's funny. There's Beer with Spear chapters now uh, all, all over the place, uh, even though I'm, uh, you know, I'm only an Exhibitio member in some of those places now. So, <laughs> Well, it's, it's
0: gone national. That's great. Well, yeah, I remember Beer with Spear <laughs> on Parliament Hill. And I was thinking about how, you know, being a, a young man, like early 20s, working at Parliament Hill, there's really no better spot to work, right? Because you've got this, you're going to work every day in uh, a setting which has amazing architecture you feel like you're you know in the center of things in the country the parties uh with all the lobbyists and the industry nights it's it's free booze and food almost every night if you want to take advantage of it so yeah we had some fun times
1: it was a fun fun town fun times yeah it feels uh feels like yesterday and also feels like decades ago so <laughs>
0: yeah. do, you, do you miss working at parliament hill at all
1: yeah, like like you said right the building uh, the building's great the town is great um just the history there. Uh, you know wandering around the markets and the canal and, and downtown and the river yeah it's a great city really enjoyed it i was there for about eight years i guess before i moved back west uh to be back home so yeah i'm happy to be be back west you know where where i'm from with uh, my family but um love love my time in ottawa
0: yeah, cool, man. Well, we could talk about politics all day and maybe we'll get back to it. But uh, the reason that you're on the show today is because you've written a book. And as pe- as listeners know, I'm always pushing good Canadian literature on this podcast. So you're here today because you've written a book and I, I have it right in front of me. It's called St. Lazarus Day and Other Stories. And it's ba- well, essentially, it's a collection of short stories. I I knew that you've been working on this for, uh, well, you showed me the draft years ago for some of the stories and I really enjoyed it, man. I love, I love uh, how you actually put this together. And I got to say that the, you know, you're you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but the cover on this is friggin' sick, man. I really like it. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the book? (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I'm I'm stoked with the cover. That's uh, that turned out better than I could have uh, imagined. And uh, no, I do appreciate Ross, and thank you for reading a lot of those earlier crude drafts. And uh, you know, certainly you were very helpful and and inspirational in your own uh, your own efforts with One Soldier and uh, and then Pawns of War, and of course this program itself. So yeah, I've been writing for you know about a decade, uh, 11, 12 years, I guess, actually originally started writing a, a novel based on a, a small town rural psychiatric hospital, um, where I'm from here in, in North Battleford, Saskatchewan, we have the largest, oldest mental institution in Western Canada, uh, 110 years old, uh, mm-hmm. this building. I worked there in college one summer. And um, you know you'd be in in town, and you'd certainly be obviously out there at the at the grounds working there. And you hear all these stories from over the decades and the generations of, of everything that transpired at the uh, the hospital, with doctors and nurses and pa- patients and treatments over time, and obviously World War One, World War II, uh, the the Dust Bowl and the interwar period. And uh, you, you know you heard some of the stories of the goings on at the uh, the institution. And then you'd hear stories around town. And uh, some of them were obviously fictional or, or based loosely on uh, incidents or events that, uh, that took place there um, from, you know, it was one of the uh, pioneering institutions for uh, using um, lobotomies and psychedelics and electroshocks. And, and then you just hear, you know, ridiculous antic stories and, and um, uh, you know, a lot of war stories uh, from certainly World War I and World War II, the end of World War II, there were uh, 4,000 patients at this uh, this facility wow. in a uh, small prairie town, really, right?
0: These are guys who are like shell shock. I guess they would have called it at the time.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, PTSD, shell-shocked, uh, certainly, certainly. Uh, the trenches in in World War One. just domestically as well, the challenges on the prairies in the 1930s uh, in the Dust Bowl, you know certain uh, certain aspects of uh, flows of, of immigration and settlement in the West and um, just practices uh, at the time as well. But you know you'd hear you'd hear stories and um, I just I, I thought you know being a literature fan and being a history a history fan under my undergrad in history it would make uh, you, you know if if somebody didn't chronicle some of these stories uh, they're going to disappear. And so that's how I started writing, um, and I started writing, started working on this novel. And over time, uh, you know, I, I started working on on many of these short stories as well, and uh, decided, uh, yeah, decided to pursue this collection um, after after a decade. And that's that's kind of the the genesis of the writing and where these stories come from. Uh, you know, my uh, there's a lot a lot of history uh, stories in this book as well. Uh, my eight grand great grandparents all homesteaded in Saskatchewan. Um, and I've got an epistolary uh, war story in here that uh, we, we could chat about. Yeah, it was just uh, you know taking taking these stories, wanting to chronicle them, keep them alive, and then uh, you know have some fun with them, obviously, and, and fictionalize them uh, a little bit, uh, a little bit as well. The, the history of the West and uh, and uh, what happened in, in some of those wars.
0: Yeah, when when you talked about this uh, this insane asylum or whatever whatever you want to call it. Like I, in my mind, I'm picturing mm-hmm. something like from one floor of the cuckoo's nest, you know, the movie. I'm
1: Absolutely. Talking. So is, yeah, is that one what this place is like? Big time. Yeah. Big time. It's uh, I, I worked there in a summer, the summer of 97 was my first summer of, uh, of undergrad. Uh, my father worked there in the first summer of his undergrad as well. Uh, we're both tending to the grounds. Um, just massive grounds on this, this rural uh, institution. Yeah. And that's exactly what it would be like, uh, you know, and, and all of those, uh, those horrible treatments and, and uh, different, different methods were uh, some of them were even invented there, right. Or certainly, uh, certainly used. Yeah. And, you know, obviously there was 4,000 patients now there's less than, less than 200 uh, because of things that have, have changed over time. But uh, yeah, that was, that was kind of the genesis of, uh, of, of writing and, uh, you know, it's better itself into some of these stories and um, that's kind of the, the next thing I'm working on is I'm gonna I'm gonna work on that uh, that novel and uh, put that to bed in the next year as well
0: sweet man I think that's gonna be a good story like it, it seems to me like it's the kind of place where you, you drive by with your kids and you, that that's got to be like a feature of the town this oh
1: and it's gorgeous architecturally and historically it's this beautiful brick and sandstone sculpture right in the north Saskatchewan River Valley uh, there was an old uh, golf course there as well uh, you know, and just just everything to do with it, it was almost like its own own city, its own uh, city state outside of town uh, in, in the rural area. Um, so yeah, it's it's one of those things. A lot of those institutions and those, those old buildings that we've lost that history, and um, this is you know one way to one way to keep some of that history alive in a in a fun kind of way as well.
0: A lot of these stories that you write about in St. Lazarus Day, they take place in you know these small. Well, yeah, small rural towns, um, I guess, like, this setting would be, at least in my mind when I'm reading this, it's, like, the flyover country that doesn't get, like, a lot of attention most of the time,
1: but... Yeah, heartland
0: like, Canada, right? Yeah, right. It seems like you, like, in a general way, like, not in a specific way, but in a general way, like, you seem to know the culture of this area, of these people, like, you know these people that you're writing about. How, how much does that uh, come into play when you're developing these characters?
1: Yeah, it, it definitely does. It comes into it in a, in a big way. Um, you know, like, like I said, uh, I've, I've been into, you know, ancestry and genealogy in, in my family for, uh, for decades. Uh, you know, history is, is a passion of mine uh, and, and literature. And so, you know, certainly trying to, to combine uh, all of that into some of these stories uh, you know, many of the characters, as, as is the case in fiction, are, are uh, you know, combined, sort of merged, m- several characters are morphed into one. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, I'm really drawn to that history and, and the people and the, and the settings and the places in, in Heartland Canada. You know, obviously, I'm, I'm from Western Canada, from the prairies. I've, I've, I've lived out east, though. And uh, all of my family, before they came to Saskatchewan, were all in, in Ontario and Upper Canada for, for a few generations as well. Um, yeah. And that is, that's, that's certainly the basis of it. You know, the, the epistolary war story in there, um, from Paris green to London purple is, uh, you know, it's, it's a story of, uh, it, it's a letter written home from the, uh, from the war in France from the Somme. Um, and it's, it's, it's fiction in a lot of respects, but based on historical events and, uh, and individuals, but the basis for that story was actually, um, my great great uncle, uh, he was the deputy minister of agriculture, the head of the agriculture department in the government of Saskatchewan in World War I. Uh, and, you know, I was sort of digging into, into his history and the family history of coming to Saskatchewan and taking on that really important position in that uh, sort of embryonic or nascent agriculture industry in, in Saskatchewan um, at the founding of the province in, in 1905. Um, so he had this position and um, war breaks out and he decides he's going to leave his his role to go and fight uh, and just just drops that drops everything in Regina. You know, his his uh, siblings and in-laws who are my family, they're farming in Saskatchewan and uh, and in, in the Okanagan for that matter, uh, pioneering the, the orchard space out there. Uh, but he's he's on the front line and he's writing home about what's happening with these German gas attacks uh, on the front line in Ypres and the Somme and 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 what was happening there. Um, so yeah, I mean that's that's certainly uh, you know uh, being fascinated obviously with with individual battles and uh, and and war in World War One and uh, and my family and and just kind of the history of settlements and and what happened. Uh, yeah, you know, in the in the West at that time.
0: So just to be clear, like. So it was your, your, your ancestor, your relative, he was the Deputy Agriculture Minister, and he went to the front lines.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> he, he quit that role. And you can imagine at the time, right, your University of Saskatchewan and their College of Agriculture starting up, the, uh, obviously all the, uh, the settlement, there's still homesteaders coming in uh, pre-World War I and, and during World War I. And deciding that, you know, as if he didn't have enough, you know, of an important role in, uh, in Saskatchewan, including supporting, uh, you know, the effort by ensuring the, the strength of that, that growing, burgeoning ag sector here, uh, he, he dropped it all and, and went over. Um, he became a major, Frank Mantle. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, he was, he was on the front line for a couple of days in 1916, uh, in September uh, three months into that brutal, uh, brutal battle on the Somme, uh, and the Canadian expeditionary force was advancing and, uh, a, a major battle, uh, around the town of Corselet in France. And, uh, yeah, second, second day on the front line. And he was, uh, he was sniped, uh, left three young kids and, uh, and his wife was my great, great aunt in, in Regina. Um, but I mean, it's just, it's fascinating, right? That mindset, that mentality, um, you know, could you imagine a deputy minister uh, today well, no, <laughs> in, no in Ottawa or wherever just, just dropping things to go and fight on the front line, right? And he actually, because he was, you know, in his mid mid to late 30s and had that senior position, I think, you know, they'd, they'd offered him all sorts of, you know, officer type positions, uh, you know, in, in strategy. And uh, he demanded, he actually took a demotion in order to go to the front.
0: I was going to get to that, uh, like. To, to answer your question, no, I cannot imagine uh, any politician doing that. Like putting, just like you know, putting themselves on the front lines of a major of a major war. I, I cannot imagine, you know, uh, a current day minister or or politician. I mean, most of the guys are pretty old, anyways. They're not like going to be going to the front, but it's still very hard to imagine a politician uh, loving their country that much. To actually put themselves in harm's way i mean yes they they say they love their country but like really are they that selfless i don't think so so it definitely shows a different mindset of of the men leading the country back it back in that era because i think that was uh you know not it, it wasn't uh it wasn't common but it, it did happen
1: yeah yeah it, it definitely did you know and i think uh In all all branches of of my family, as is I think is is the case with anyone, anyone in the West back then. Uh, you know, obviously families are much bigger and and uh, but it's it's just incredible, just just culturally, right? That 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 mindset. And and so many folks went over, and these are right after those major battles. Beaumont Hamel, like that was that was the beginning of the am on July first. Uh, in 1916, where where the regiment from Newfoundland was just slaughtered, right? And I mean, yeah, like it's 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 incredible to to think that and see that. And uh, you know, it's it's really funny too. Like he uh, he was married to my great great aunt, and her like their their cousin who farmed adjacent to them in Southwest Manitoba. There was like this parallel family history uh, where the cousin he was he he was supposed to go over as well but he ended up doing his doctorate in minnesota in agriculture and uh, he ended up becoming the dean of agriculture at the u of s and it's just it's it's funny like you know when you think about that too uh, this this deputy minister goes over and gets gunned down and the, the cousin ends up sort of building up the the institution this guy was sort of like a canadian norman borlaug before borlaug he was uh very involved in uh sort of stemming the tide and helping. Uh, uh, deal with the dust bowl problem in terms of erosion uh, with with soil and stuff like that. But uh, you know how many people were like that though that did 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 go over. Uh, you know they had had great things going on and uh, the culture, the mindset to go over and and do that is is incredible. So, you know that's that's in my family. I think every every family out here who's been out here for generations has similar stories. Um, it's a history of of World War One and you know the franco oppression leading into that, of course uh, the depression and then obviously World War Two. It's it's you know in some respects it seems like ancient history, but in in others it's it's not. It's it's uh, very recent as well, recent recent memory. Let's
0: get into the actual like story of of uh, what you're referencing there. So what I really like about it, or what I find interesting, is how you you know, you've got the soldier, he's in the trenches and this letter back home is really describing uh, the chemical warfare that the Germans are using. So like the, the, the various poison gases, which there was many different types. And this soldier is, he's sort of making, he's describing the gases by using, by making connections to like cooking and meals and like pleasant aromas. It's like, definitely goes to the dichotomy of, of of, uh, of warfare because there there can be like some beautiful things in war. Uh, of course, there can be some really horrible things too. I find it interesting how near the end of the letter, this soldier he he posits this idea that wouldn't it be wouldn't it be really devious if we could sort of camouflage, take this one step further, and camouflage our own poison gas to smell like really good? Like you want to you want to take a big whiff of that? And because that's the best kind of weapon, right? It's the weapon that you don't even know that you can't see. Or that you think is good for you.
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. So I was writing a couple of stories uh, at the same time, and they sort of uh, they sort of morphed into this one, this letter back home from the front. Um, and one of them was uh, my great great grandfather was uh, he was pioneering in the Okanagan uh, in Kelowna, uh, and I was reading about um, he was the head of the Board of Trade there and the Agricultural Society, and I was reading about pesticides. And insecticides, and what they used to use a hundred years ago to keep away the uh, the beetles and the uh, and and the moths and everything that would decimate crops. Uh, and there was this uh, this one, uh, you know, they were all arsenic based, which was just terrible, right? That one was called Paris Green. It was ultimately uh, developed in in France to deal with uh, sewer rats. But they found that if you spritzed it on on plants, uh, it would deal with all your common rodent and insect problems in the West, even though it was highly toxic and and poisonous. Uh, And then that was sort of replaced with one which was a little bit less uh, potent. It was called London purple uh, for potato beetles and things like that. Uh, But it would turn plants purple, uh, this arsenic-based poison. But when I was reading about the gases in World War One, that's that's right. Yeah, you know the the French started using tear gas, which was um, it's got kind of a fruity smell. It's not really toxic though. It just it's to sort of disorient folks, right? Obviously, police use that today. Uh, And then uh, then all these other really toxic ones have been developed. Chlorine uh, was used early on at Ypres uh, by the Germans in 1915. Uh, and it's, it's interesting, because when it comes at you, it has this peppery pineapple sort of an aroma, uh, and it smells really, really good. Uh, and it comes at you, though, in this cloud of this lime green, dirty cloud, uh, sort of ominous as it billows towards you. And that's what they would do on the front line. They'd have to wait for the wind. And when the direction blowing the right way, they release these canisters, and then the gas would go towards their, the, um, the opposing troops. Um, so this this lime green cloud, it was it just it reminded me of all the descriptions of what they were using with this Paris green uh, to kill pests in North America. So the soldier's writing a letter and he's he's kind of using it as as an analogy, and then like you say it it, it goes goes further and further. The the and pebble chlorine it, it quickly smells like bleach, uh, but at that point you know you've been uh, you've been hit. Um, that didn't affect troops uh, too badly. There was probably a thousand deaths, um, but it was quickly mitigated against with the use of masks, right? Uh, but then after that, phosgene came in. Uh, they started using that, and that was uh, highly fatal, uh, really, really brutal, uh, brutal gas. It smells sort of like uh, like fresh cut grass, uh, which is kind of one of the notes of Sauvignon Blanc, which is which is funny, right? Uh, but highly toxic and and uh, colorless, so uh, that was a really dangerous, the most dangerous chemical weapon in uh, in World War One, and then of course they, they started using mustard gas, which we're familiar with in, in 1917, uh, the Germans as well, and and that's got an aroma of like horseradish and garlic, and so this uh, this individual is writing back to Canada, writing back home, but he's he's thinking about the farm and the pesticides used there. And then you can't tell, like, is he shell shocked? Like, is he talking sentiently and rationally, or has he gone squirrely in the trenches as well? Right. And then he's using it as an analogy, he's, uh, you know, telling, uh, telling his father in law to uh, be careful spraying the, uh, the apple trees, know the direction of the wind, right? Because the yeah. British actually had a terrible time at Luce. They, uh, they were trying to copy the Germans and they, um, they set them off, and then the wind changed directions. And uh, you know, it actually took a toll on on themselves, uh, unfortunately, just just terrible weapons. and uh, you know I think that's only a hundred years ago, right?
0: Yeah, well, it makes you wonder if this uh, the soldier writing this letter if he if he's a good candidate for that uh, lunatic assignment we talked about uh, earlier because yeah, it's not really like just just to make the connection to you know that uh, good good home cooking with uh, the horseradish and pineapple and
1: Exactly, it's it's like a light, light, uh, light sense of humor and discussion. When yeah, I mean, you know, your your fellows next to you are sort of melting away from mustard gas, or or just you know, dropping dead when the chlorine or the phosgene that goes into your membranes, right?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, and that's a good point, though. I mean, if when you talk to to soldiers who have been at war and, and who have written about it, humor is uh, a necessary ingredient to. Mm-hmm. sort of talking about these stories because if you don't have humor then you know it's just you'll go crazy thinking about the terrible things and it's just like like it's a coping mechanism i think that Mm -hmm. people use when when discussing these horrible events i think you nailed it with this story really really liked it i was thinking also about how you know these are chemical weapons but and we really in the modern world we we can't even begin to imagine what it would be like to you know just be in an environment where chemical weapons are being used or because they haven't been used since, at least, you know, in World War II, they weren't used, at least not in the battlefield. They were, of course, used on the uh, the concentration camps. But, you know, I, I was thinking about when I was getting ready for this podcast, I was thinking about the coronavirus and COVID-19. Not a chemical weapon, but our society is definitely acting as if it's a biological one. Uh, all the precautions that are being taken, not knowing exactly, you know, its effects. I mean, that's because the soldiers in World War One, they they knew... The first couple of times the the gas was probably bad, but they they would have no point of reference to you know just how bad it was but yeah I think that's like maybe when we're thinking about these things, maybe uh probably the closest we can get is just thinking of our own world the the virus that we're dealing with today it's think sort of about boom. that
1: and just uh well, and in the last twenty years too, you know the uh the the potential for just Technology is great because it democratizes everything. Um, but you know the simplicity with automation and and what you're able to do with with some of the stuff. It's uh, you know I was certainly thinking about that writing this story as well, right? Like uh, you mentioned World War II. Um, you know what if VX had been used on uh, on a major scale, right? With uh, with the right rocket technology, um, that would have made the phosgene and chlorine and mustard gas look like kindergarten. Um, but yeah, that's that's true. Uh, you, chemi- chemical weapons today, uh, and 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 biological.
0: Actually, I shouldn't have said that. I haven't been used. I mean, there was uh, the Kurds in northern Iraq definitely got uh, yeah. a, a huge dose of chemical weapons uh, from Saddam Hussein. So, you know, the Canadian soldiers I don't think have been exposed to it, but around the world for sure, the armies that were faced against. I mean, the leaders know that if they did use chemical weapons, the response would be so severe that. It's not even worth it. I mean, think about gassing American troops. Well, if you do that, and you know, the gloves are going to come off.
1: Yeah, well, that's that's exactly exactly it, right? And it's uh, just sophistication today too, right? I mean, you read some of these incidents in World War One uh, that I was reading about. Like I said, at Luce, uh, it just it backfired on on the British. Uh, the Germans did it several times too, where it, it backfired uh, in setting off these these canisters. Um there's some incredible pictures. I know the war museum has some of them too of of gas attacks on the Somme and Ypres, And it's uh it's yeah, it's 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 unbelievable, but it is. It's uh it almost seems fictional and unthinkable in itself. Um looking at this. Uh but we know very well that it it happened and uh you know it's it's incredible looking back though.
0: Robin, one of the uh one of the challenges of writing a book is Uh, especially the kind of book that that you've written, and we've talked about this before, is 27% of, and actually I think it's higher than that, I think it's more like 30% of Canadians haven't bought a book in the last year. That doesn't mean that they've read books either. Like the other 75% doesn't mean that they've they've read a book, but maybe they bought it and didn't read it. So at least 30% of Canadians haven't uh, bought a book or read a book in the previous year. When you look at fiction, which is what you're writing about, there's a huge gender gap this is something that I've been on about for quite some time, but men make up 20% of the fiction market. Women make up the other percent, the other 80%. And I, by the way, I totally believe these stats because when I was selling uh, my book, one soldier and chapters in Indigo, it was roughly like, I'd say eight out of 10 buyers were women. And that, and that was sort of like a manly book, you know, it's about war. And
1: yeah. But uh, gift books, right?
0: (laughs) This this is what we've talked about before is that uh, men and particularly young, young men and boys, they aren't reading as much as they used to. Your, your wife is a teacher. She probably sees it all the time. Just like I do in the classroom that, you know, the girls come to class and they, they're, they're probably reading a book at home. The boys come to school and they're not reading anything. So what, what can we do to change sort of like fill in this gender gap where, where men, and young young men and boys aren't reading as much as uh, as their female counterparts because I think the reason I bring this up is because I think your book sort of maybe like sort of will encourage this this demographic to read so what, what do you think is going on there
1: yeah that's a that's a great great question really great point Um <laughs> Yeah. And it's I think I think fiction's different as well. You know, I know you've you've had great success uh, with with your books, uh, you know, military fiction and, and military nonfiction. You know, I think that uh, uh, yeah, I've got a, a good friend here, actually, in Saskatchewan. He wrote a wrote a great hockey book, fictional memoir, uh, in a sense. He had great success with that uh, sports books, military books, uh, history yeah fiction fiction's a different uh, different beast too like this collection is short stories you know i'm i'm a big big short story fan you know I, i'm a huge fan of alice Monroe and um uh, a lot of the other uh, contemporary short story uh, writers you know it's just it, it, there's an overwhelming uh, buffet of entertainment out there right and i i actually tried to uh you know, this this kind of backfired uh, on me like uh, like the Brits at loose using uh, chemical weapons. But I thought you know I'm gonna I'm gonna release this during quarantine when everybody's uh, when everybody's at home and I'm really gonna pitch it hard that way uh, based on the fact that there's no sports, there's no you can't go out, you can't socialize, and then of course we had our supply chain logistics disruptions and things like that. You know is. is like Russ, do you want to read a lot of the fiction out there today? Though um, that's that's one of the questions. This award-winning fiction, you know, with uh, I think the publishing industry, uh, traditional publishing industry, not unlike in, recording and other other entertainment sectors, are they're facing challenging times um, with with technology, just with different things that are happening, and they're trying to find find their own niches. And I think it's it's good in the sense that there is some democratization, and it allows. You know, it allows me to do what I've done, and you to do what you do, and and to allow us to talk here about this right now, and encourage uh, you know our friends and colleagues and others to uh, to read good books, to read new books, and and get into it, younger and older. But yeah, I I think uh, you know I think there's a bit of a crisis in 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 several of these sectors, and I think that um, that's uh, that's feeding into maybe maybe why uh, why men aren't reading uh, as 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 much as they should be
0: yeah and and you asked the question, "Do I want to read the fiction that 's being pumped out by Ken Litt? and the answer is a resounding no and you know and that 's not not to say that the writing isn't good um like there's there's an audience out there for it, but it's typically uh you know a female audience there's mm-hmm. not a lot being put out there for men because by and large if you if 've got like a young man or a boy who wants to read something, they want to read about war and action and adventures. And, and that's just not being put out by, by Ken lit. I know one of the, there's a couple of different reasons for this, but uh, one person who I think really nailed it was uh, who was it? Jonathan K or Jonathan? Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. So he, yeah, he's he talked this, about this a fair bit. Yeah.
0: He had this great essay uh, basically explaining why the Canadian publishing industry is the way that it is. And the crazy thing is, is that most of the money that the Canadian publishers make beyond, I think beyond the big ones, like beyond HarperCollins and beyond Penguin, but by and large, most of the money that is generated by the publishing houses is by government grants. And so if you want to make money as a publisher, you got to put out books that are eligible for these government grants. The criteria for these grants are, well, it's it's like, you could probably imagine you got to have a diverse cast of characters, you know, some like LGBTQ spin, something like all, all like the liberal stuff that you that you could imagine because it's coming from the government, of course. Uh, but if that's, if that's the criteria for publishing a book, then that you're really narrowing the field. So, uh, and, and by the way, I've talked to other authors, uh, this is not sour grapes. Uh, I've talked to other successful authors who listeners to this show probably have heard of. And behind the scenes, the the complaints are always the same that this is the direction publishing is heading towards. And it's, it's like really catering to like a more narrow and narrow field as time goes on. And that's not a good thing for our society because if we've got citizens who aren't reading and who don't have those literacy skills, it's not good for our society or our democracy.
1: No. And I, I think that you're right on that. And I think the, um, you know, in, in uh, higher education and too in, in the post-sex space, um, the, the MFA set is exactly the same. It's, it's being uh, channeled one direction and then the, the publishing houses are are putting out the same stuff really as well. Like, you know, and it's not Sarah Graves. I mean, you and I've done some stuff and others have too. And it's, you know, we've had success and we've had creative control and, and done done what we wanted to do. But, uh, you know, like Kay and others have, have talked about as well. These books are, uh, you know, a lot like, look, a lot of them are great as well. This isn't a sweeping generalization. They sell a couple hundred copies. They win an award an award put together by the publishing set and the MFA set. And uh, a lot of these books are unreadable.
0: Yeah. Um, Which is why they sell like less than 400 copies.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's like, you know,
0: it's, it's all, it's all pretty contrived really.
1: Yeah. So whereas like, you know, I, I've got uh, my, my, my genres and styles of these stories are different. Like we've, we've talked about the epistolary war story and I've got some history and I've got a, I've got a contemporary western, and I've got a transgressive sort of a western. Um, but yeah, you know, where where the Canadian Chuck Polenix, the, the Fight Clubs, like where you know, we uh, wouldn't get through the door any of this stuff. That uh, those are the books that uh, you know we're going to get our, our friends and colleagues and, and others reading and interested in reading. Fun, fresh lit that's readable. It's it's original and and unique and not pigeonholed in this, uh, these, these terms that the, the industry said.
0: Yeah, man. Couldn't agree more. So let, let's just, uh, before we wrap up here, let's just talk about a little bit more about war and fiction. So, you, you know, you've got uh, from Paris Green to London Purple, which who knows, maybe that will make its way into the pantheon of, uh, of Canadian war literature. But, <laughs> but what, are, what are some of the, uh, the great war books that that you've read and it doesn't have to be Canadian, but what what are some ones that you sort of look to and you're like, yeah, that's, that's an awesome uh, story.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, I, I love, uh, I love, uh, war literature. You know, I did, uh, I did a postgraduate certificate in creative writing, uh, at, through Edinburgh, university of Edinburgh. Um, and I, I, I did a lot of reading about uh, Hemingway's, uh, Hemingway's uh, writings in world war one, big, big fan of the short stories. The big two-hearted river, uh, you know, a soldier coming back to North America uh from the front line. I think that's one of the greatest short stories uh, ever written. He has several uh short, short war stories. Of course, the farewell to arms, uh, the novel uh about the Italian uh, theater is is incredible. Um one of my favorites on about World War One, and it's it's pre-World War One. Uh there's an author named Erskine Childers, uh, who's Irish. Um, and he was, he was concerned just personally on what the Germans were doing in the very early 1900s, right around the turn of the century, but building up their army, building up their fortifications in the Frisian islands and, and and what was going on with their Navy. And he was in a nonfiction way. He was writing letters and doing all sorts of things in London, uh, and, and Paris trying to, uh, Trying to uh, war, basically warn, warn that you know the Germans were building up, they were militarizing, and this was going to be a huge problem. And he wrote a fictional uh, a novel. It's called The uh, Riddle of the Sands, and I think it's three or four. Uh, and it's this brilliant uh, novel of just a guy on a yacht who's who's out in the Frisians and, and off the German coast and uh, writing sort of a spy story. But he, he's he's also trying to warn uh, the Brits that this is this is coming, and we got to get our uh, got to get our shit together. Uh, in case this goes down, and you know, ten years later, it was like prescient, right? But it was just this cool novel. But um, yeah, you know, uh, certainly Hemingway. Uh, th- there's a lot of great World War One lit. Uh, Death on the Installment Plan, Celine, uh, from his time in in France. Brilliant, the brilliant stuff uh, on on that level. Yeah. Cool,
0: man. You know what? Uh, I think we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up pretty soon. But oh, first of all, I want to tell you that. This is the like literally the first podcast I've done where my wife has said to me, "Yeah, go film it, go do it." Uh, <laughs> Rob is a cool guy. <laughs> so so thank you for that. And you know, actually, that goes back to uh, you know when we we first uh, met 20 years ago in politics. You were always seen as uh, a really a really cool guy, real genuine guy who you know wasn't going to play the political games, I guess you could say, and everyone really respected. And uh, so, anyways, thank you. Thank you for that, because and most of the time when I interview these these military guys, it's always I have to do like some negotiation with my wife, saying like, okay, well you you look after the kids for an hour, and then I'll like look after them for two hours. So this is the first time where that hasn't
1: happened. Go talk to Robin about his uh, his silly stories. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, well, but and I think your your listeners, like obviously, yeah, your your guests have all been incredible. Russ, uh, kudos for the show. Uh, just just overall and the guests and, and books have been great. Uh, yeah, I've, I've learned a ton listening to it. So yeah, this is just fiction and short stories, but you know, there is that, uh, that war story. There's, there's some Westerns, there's some history in here. Um, there's some, uh, some transgressive sort of stuff. And, uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think guys and gals, there's lots of different genres and, and literary styles here for, uh, for your listeners. And it's just a fun, fun, fresh read for summer too.
0: The book is called St. Lazarus day and other stories written by R. Conrad Spear. I'm going to put a, a link to, uh, to the book on the website. Check out the book, guys. It's really good. I think you're going to enjoy it. Robin, thanks a lot for being on. And uh, we'll, we'll have a real beer of Spear in person, uh, hopefully sometime in the near future.
1: We'll have a pint soon, Russ. Yeah, thanks very much for having me on. It was great chatting with you and uh, have a great summer.
0: And that concludes my discussion with Robin Spear author of St. Lazarus Day and other short stories. I'm going to post a link to the book online so you can check it out. If you like today's show, then please share it with your friends and leave a review and subscribe and rate the podcast. Hey, you can also help me out by buying a copy of the best-selling book, One Soldier, or The Pawns of War, or both. In keeping with the theme of today's show, I'm going to do something a little bit different and dedicate it to the parents of all those young boys out there who are maybe struggling to read or struggling to even get interested in reading. Stick with it, take your kid to a library, set him loose, see what books he's drawn towards and start from there. That's it for today's
1: episode. Until next time, out.